Good morning again. God works out all things according to his magnificent purposes. I'm more amazed and more convinced of that simple fact the longer I walk with Christ. And I consider even the study this morning as divinely ordained by God. That you may sound like I'm bragging or I'm saying, you know, I'm in tune, but God even can lead a mule, of which I confess oftentimes I behave similar. But in my study on the apostles recently, I've grown to find more and more of an appreciation for the Apostle John. And uh, you may recall the last time I preached, I talked about the young John when he wanted to call down fire and smoke the Samaritans because they weren't hospitable to Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to read from an older John. And in fact, we're going to read from a John who is nearing the end of his life, near the end of the first century. And I confess I've never preached out of this epistle before directly. I've referred to it. But it's a difficult epistle. And many expositors stay away from this book because of its problems. But I believe that God has ordained this passage for this morning. And in fact, I had that, that sense, uh, although I didn't hear the entire Sunday school on church history, I recognized that a lot of what you that were here for Sunday school heard is the context of this book, this epistle. And in fact, um, the apostle of love, as John is known, uh, is so concerned for the church that he sat down to write this. And the thing that I, I really appreciate about John at this stage of his life is because he's an older guy, he doesn't waste time. He doesn't have a lot of time to waste. And he tells it like it is, to use a vernacular. Some would call him abrupt. Some might even call him harsh. The apostle of love has concern for the churches that he has had the most influence upon. So the area that this letter circulated, and it's a very unique letter, isn't it, and that there's no address, there's no salutation, he just begins... And that's one thing about old people. They speak in what I call square waves. You know, they don't build up to it. They just, here it is. Right, Ron? Exactly. So he begins this letter very abruptly because he's concerned about the churches. And this is Asia Minor or what we would call Turkey, uh, where this letter circulated. And the concern uh, that John is addressing is an area of his personal expertise. There are none of the apostles that I believe represent Christology or the science of Christ or who Christ is better than the apostle John. He was very close to Jesus, as you know, and as such was privileged to see aspects of the Lord that none of the others saw in his closeness uh, to Jesus. So at this point in time, John is probably the last living apostles because the others had all been martyred. And John being one of the younger at the time of Jesus' incarnation was given the time to live longer. And of course we have the book of Revelation which was after his exile to the Isle of Patmos. So he's nearing the end of his life. And heresies have already crept into the church even though it's less than 100 years old. 
heresies had slipped in that were causing fractures to occur and people were leaving the church in great numbers. And he's concerned about it. And one of the things that motivated these heresies were talked about in Sunday school. The heresy of Gnosticism, Docetism, or Docetics. And they were essentially saying that the apostles' teaching was insufficient. It was insufficiently spiritual. Needed to be at a higher level representing God the great deity. Some of uh, the commentators that I read from believe that cultural influences affected the church and that the Greek philosophies of the day were migrating into the thinking of these first century Christians. So as I said, John begins right away with who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And so verses 1 to 4 is a springboard, it's a diving board, if you will, into the rest of the epistle. Now, God willing, I hope to preach a series out of 1 John. I've been called to preach um, at our old church uh, for five Sundays in a row in October. And so I'm planning five messages. You'll get a few of them as I have the opportunity to preach here. But verses 1 to 4 establishes who is Jesus. What is Christianity? So if I were to ask you, and hopefully you've practiced this, you've rehearsed it for yourself, because somebody's going to ask you someday, what is Christianity? And I hope you have an elevator conversation already. You know what an elevator conversation is? An elevator conversation is being able to get the gospel out between the first and the fifth floor of some building in the elevator if somebody might ask you, what is the gospel? What is this Christianity thing all about? The last time I spoke here, I I talked about some of what we would call modern-day evangelicals. And I was a little on the negative side. Again, forgive me, I'm I'm old. Some people said I was kind of cranky that day, but it is what it is. Modern evangelical churches oftentimes characterize themselves with primarily a fundamental misunderstanding as to who is Jesus and what is Christianity. They betray themselves by not having the root of the matter demonstrated in their life. They don't walk the talk. The Apostle John's going to get into this very shortly, but not today. This idea that Christianity affects the pattern of my life. It's not saying, and John is not saying that we never sin, because if you say you don't have sin, you are a liar. But he's saying if the pattern of your life, you think back and you say, for the last five years, for the last five months, how has my life been? What's my pattern? You gotta ask yourself as you begin this study in this epistle, how is my walk? Am I demonstrating that the root of the matter is in my heart? The apostle doesn't pull any punches, he's gonna get into that. Secondly, he, many refer to themselves as Christians. But they don't even know what they believe. Again, the elevator conversation needs to be practiced. What do we believe? Who is this man, Jesus, known as the Christ or the Messiah? You may remember that John is referred to as the apostle of love. His messages are just filled up with imperatives that we should love one another. And if you're one that punches into church for an hour once a week and then punches out, you don't have the opportunity to demonstrate that you love one another. Because you barely mingle. You know, the, uh, the, the dating site, Christian Mingle. We need to mingle with one another. We need to live with one another. We need to bear up with one another. We need to come alongside one another as Reed is doing right now with his close friend Tony, coming alongside of to help carry the burdens. And it's hard. 
ladies and gentlemen. It is difficult. But this epistle is loaded, loaded, that I mentioned loaded, with imperatives that we should love the brothers. If, if we are attending some kind of mega church situation because we love anonymity, we love to go in, we love to worship, and we love to leave without anybody knowing our name, I would say we're missing the point that John is advising the disciples with in this first century situation. So the apostle wrote this epistle so that we might know what a Christian is. That there could be no doubt by the time we finish this epistle as to what a Christian is. And he's given us the ability to validate whether or not the root of the matter is in our own hearts. And as I said, there is no reason by the time you're through with this epistle to question. You know, there's a lot of people that struggle Uh, Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? I just don't know if I'm a Christian. You can read this epistle and you can figure it out real quick. Whether I'm a believer or not. So one of the fruits of this epistle and the study thereof is that we'll have assurance of our salvation. That is a tremendous blessing all of itself. In fact, we may refer to it later. depends how far we get. Um, in the fifth chapter, he refers to the objective of the whole epistle. The epistle is to be able to measure ourselves in accordance with the truth. And in the future, I will break down uh, more of these specific aspects. But John is taking away the mysticism. He's taking away uh, the floaty, cloud-like gray smoke that's associated with many people's faith. And he's just saying, it's very practical. Here it is. Here's an objective measure. And then he presents three tests. And this epistle is not, I don't know anybody that thinks this is their favorite epistle. Because they love to take tests, right? So here's the three tests. The moral test is in this epistle. Are we walking in obedience to the truth? The moral test. The second test that he lays out is the social test. Do we really love the brethren? It's not mystical to ask yourself, you say you love the brethren, but you haven't talked with one, you haven't prayed with one, you haven't come alongside of one who's in trouble. In so long, you've forgotten, and there's cobwebs in your Christian life. Do you love the brethren? Simple question. The doctrinal test is the third test. What do we believe? And what's interesting about this epistle is, John, like an old guy, If you try to diagram this epistle, and I I recommend it on the connection that you read the five chapters. I don't know if some of you found that to be excruciatingly difficult to sit down and read five chapters. But try to diagram the thought, and and John's classically like an old guy. It's like talking to George. I mean, you just, you go along, and he has an idea, and he lays it out there, but then he goes into a parentheses for a second, And then he goes over here to another parenthesis, and then he comes back to the same storyline again. So it's kind of a little bit of a whipsaw situation where you're being tossed around trying to follow him. But one thing you'll see is like every old guy, he repeats himself. He repeats himself. He repeats himself. Did I mention he repeats himself? So what specifically, as we zoom into this epistle, what was going on? there in Asia Minor at this time. Well, apparently these false teachers had decided, as I said earlier, that the teaching of the apostle was insufficiently spiritual. It wasn't spiritual enough. Gnostics' way of thinking was that any deity that could reside in flesh had to have been sinful, had to have been corrupt, weak, And so the very thought of the incarnation where you had Jesus Christ who was fully God and fully man at the same time was unacceptable to their way of thinking. God was higher than this. They had a high view of God. Does this sound familiar, Mark? A high view of God. Sounds very spiritual. They had a high view of God. And anything fleshly was incompatible with 
the high view of God. The idea of incarnation was just atrocious to their way of thinking. Well, many people got sucked into this. After all, somebody says, well, you know, you have this teaching over here, but it's insufficient. I mean, to really be spiritual, you have to go to another plane. Does that sound familiar? It's been happening over and over again for the last two millennia. You know, in this very historical area, it's called the Burnt Over District, which is eastern New York and New Hampshire and Vermont, a little bit of Connecticut. The Burnt Over District was where Charles Finney got his big start, where he would go into churches and he would say, if you're really a believer, you need to do bless thus and so, and come forward and rededicate yourself again. And that caught on big time, that that whole movement. Then you had the Wesley brothers and the holiness movement that were seeking a, a higher life, that were seeking a higher plane of spiritual existence than they had previously experienced. And so they were seeking this, in essence, second blessing. And of course, that brings to mind many of us that came out of the charismatic movement. Where, as you know, I mean, if you're realistic, there were class A and class B or class 1 and class 2 kind of Christians. There were the Christians that had the Holy Spirit and thus prayed in tongues. And there were those that didn't. And they were second class. And so this idea of a higher plane or a more spiritual existence or walk is a temptation that's existed since the church began some 2,000 years ago. And you might say, this could never happen here. Oh, but it could. Oh, but it could. One of the things John talks about is the enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as long as those enemies are loose on this earth, and this is their dominion, the world, the flesh, and the devil will tempt us into any situation and every situation. And the main thing he tempts us into is comparison. Where because I'm involved in a certain ministry that I feel called of God to be involved, all you all should be involved in the same ministry. And if you're not, you are something less spiritual. Is that possible in this church? Yeah, it is. We get into this competitive spirituality idea. I'm more spiritual and, oh, by the way, humble. That's a joke, people. I'm a Christian and I'm proud of it. Um, But I don't think this is what Paul intended in Romans Chapter 12, verse 10, when he said we were to outdo one another in doing good. He didn't talk about competitive spirituality. But it is so easy to get tripped up with this. With well-meaning hearts that are burning towards a specific ministry. Could be homeschooling, right? If you really love your children, you're going to homeschool. Some people aren't gifted to homeschool and they don't do it. That doesn't make them sub-Christian. Maybe it's orphan adoption. If you don't adopt orphans, then you don't love kids. Some people are gifted for that and some people aren't. Inner city ministries. That's a good one. If you're not involved in the inner city ministry, then somehow you're less spiritual. There are myriads of ways that Satan can sow seeds of discord right in this church, just like any other church, if we get into this notion of competitive spirituality. And that's what we had here uh, with these folks that were influencing uh, the churches in what the theologians called the Johannian community, or Asia Minor, Turkey. So let's dig in to verse 1. Dig into 1 John, verse 1. I'm sorry I don't have slides. This was one of those weeks that I would just as soon set aside in the history of things. But that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, 
and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The first thing that we have to know about this Jesus is his pre-existence. His pre-existence. For us to have a balanced view as to who this Jesus is, we have to know that he existed long before he was born in the manger. And his existence spans more than 33 years of the incarnation. And in fact, if you were to draw a time graph of eternity past over here on that wall, and eternity future over here on this wall, 33 years would be a gap that's about this big between my two fingers. We have to know, first of all, to have a balanced view of Jesus, to understand that he existed from eternity past and continues to exist, yet in a different form as the God-man who's been raised up and seated at the right hand of God the Father. Several years ago, the elders here, I think it was 2012, uh, when Reed was on sabbatical, tackled a portion of Scripture in Colossians. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you still carry a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. And again, what we have in in these few verses is a picture that helps us to understand who this Jesus really is. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. This Jesus that we call ourselves after being Christians was the creator. All things that were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, There's nothing in that scope that's not covered. All things were created. This Jesus was the creator of all things. In verse 17, he says, And he is before all things, meaning he preexisted from eternity past. And in him all things hold together. God provides the kinetic energy in Jesus. To hold your molecules together. You know, some, I spent most of my career in scientific study and research. And what I always got a blast out of was pseudo-intellectuals that told me that science and faith were incompatible. And I say, hogwash! Because if you know the creator of all things, you understand creation in a way that they never can by looking outside as observers. They're like anthropologists that try to understand what's going on and how this all happened. We have it here for us, folks. And faith and science are certainly not incompatible. In fact, it's his science. Right, Ben? His science. And he is the head, the body of the, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, meaning he raised and he was the first one to be raised that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What a great doxology. That's the Jesus uh, that we worship. And that's the Jesus that the Apostle John is talking about. Now, Our view of who this Jesus is, is critical. This idea of Christology. If there's anything that should join us together as believers in other places, it's Christology. What is your view of Christ? What is your view of Jesus? Who is this man that we worship? And the error of many evangelical churches is that in order to minister to man, they've become man-centered 
Even their worship is man-centered. It's all about me. You know, we sang that song, it's all about you, Jesus. And in many churches, it's all about me. It's about making me feel good. It's about giving me an emotional zing. It's about lifting me up. And i got to tell you, folks, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. That's why we're here. If it's about me, you can all just say bye and leave. Go jogging or play golf or do something. Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. So, what is the apostle doing here? He's going to be dealing with this problem in the church with these teachers that have said that the flesh, that the manhood of Christ is incompatible with the deity of Christ. But before he gets into this, he, he, he's presenting a balanced perspective. Because one without the other means we are hopeless. If Jesus Christ is not God, we're hopeless. If Jesus Christ was not a man in the flesh, we are hopeless. If Jesus Christ be not raised, we might as well go watch cartoons on television. So we see that this Jesus, while on the earth, was the Word. And in fact, John even refers to that in this very first verse. He refers to Jesus as the word of life. Now, there's a lot of controversy with some of the epistles. Some of the commentators that I read say, oh, that can't mean Jesus. But you can't read the gospel of John and read the epistle of John, knowing that they're written by the same guy and not say that this is referring to Jesus as the word of life, the life-giving word. The life-giving word. In the beginning was the word. Now again, when you think about the incarnation and the relationship that we have with Jesus is only enabled by the incarnation because God, without the incarnation, is unknowable. He's uncomprehendable. So God was made flesh so that we could have a relationship with him. But if, our, if, if in our initial conception of meeting Jesus in the incarnate Christ for 33 years on this earth, and we stop there, and we stop there in the manhood of Christ, we're missing the point. Because we need to have a balanced perspective on the incarnate Christ. Jesus, man. Christ, God. Jesus, the Christ. He is the Logos. Hebrews 1 3 is a one, another wonderful text. That we worship a God who speaks. We worship a communicating God. We worship a God who wishes to be known by his people. And this the only way that we could know God is to have the incarnate Christ. For us to understand the Old Testament, we have to look at the Old Testament through Christ. Otherwise, none of it makes sense. It just looks like. One bloody massacre after another. We have to look at the Old Testament to know the God of the Old Testament through Christ. Because Christ was the pillar of fire. Christ walked with Adam in the garden. Christ met with Moses in the burning bush. The Sinai experience with the lightning and the thunder was Christ. The vision that Isaiah had when he saw God high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6 was Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. This is the only way that we could identify. But as I hurry on, let's say that we have to have a balance when we think of Christ. And the, and the apostles dealing with this erroneous thinking, this super spiritual thinking that God could not reside in flesh. Experiencing the weakness associated with the flesh could not experience the dependency. Do you realize God eternal becomes man and for the first time in the existence of eternity he has to depend on oxygen. Think about that. He has to depend on somebody to feed him. 
He comes from, from heaven where he experiences the worship of myriads of heavenly beings and he becomes a baby totally dependent, trusting in his earthly parents and in his heavenly father. Trusting was a new experience for Jesus. So the eternal word becomes flesh so that it can be comprehended by man. If he had not become flesh, we would not know God. So he becomes flesh so that he can be known. And all previous thought about the divine nature that that all of these Gnostics or philosophers had was turned head over heels upon the Incarnation. So important that John begins his epistle by assuring his readers that we saw him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears. We touched him. And look at this passage. It's, you know, he's, he's referring to having handled the word of life. John, he's probably in his 90s. He's recalling leaning upon the breast of the Lord Jesus. He's recalling Jesus after the ascension and holding up his hands and pulling his his robe back and saying, go ahead, put your finger in there. Look at the holes. We touched him. He touched us. We used our senses to perceive God in the flesh. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way, if you haven't read Martin Lloyd-Jones, you need to, probably need to, to be a Christian, but I will assure that. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and uh, in, in, he has this series that I, that I uh, borrowed uh, on this epistle called Fellowship with God. And he says this in volume 1, page 50. He says, in essence, John's message is Jesus Christ. In essence, John's message is Jesus Christ. He says, that is our report, says John. Here we are in this difficult period of history. So what have I to say to you? Well, he says, I have the most amazing and unbelievable thing that a man can ever say, and I have nothing else to add. It is this. The word of life has become flesh and dwelt among us. The word of life has become flesh and dwelt among us. That's it, folks. That's your elevator speech between aisles uh, floor one and floor three. The gospel is Jesus Christ. My hope is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is everything and everything to a believer. The incarnation is incomprehensible for us. I always get a charge out of people that approach the scriptures with their reasoned logic, which is if then. Engineers study about logic. If then. If then. If then. And they put up these hyperbole, these if this, then that. Explain the incarnation. I defy you to use human logic and explain the incarnation. This is something we take by faith. We have to take it by faith. We know that Jesus was in the flesh, yet without sin. He experienced weakness. He experienced dependency, yet without sin. And as such was the perfect substitute for us. That he died. That God's wrath against us was poured out on his son that we might be righteous. He took us who were not at peace with God and gave us peace with God because of what he did for us, because he was perfect without sin, yet he was totally man. You explain that any better? I don't know. Brian in Ray's memorial referred to that great text. I love the text in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, you don't mind. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. 
Because this, this text deals with this deep theological concept of the incarnation. And of course, let's start with verse 4. I think, Brian, that's where you started the other day. Verse 4. Uh, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Now, just with that passage, the form... Uh, 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 the root word there, the forma or schema, is that he was equal to God. He was God. This isn't just that he was made in the fashion of to look like, because in some sense we are as well. We're made in the image of God. He was equal to God. That's the root word, is equal to God in every way, shape, or form. And he made himself of no reputation. Or what this says in this passage is that He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. He didn't say, no, I will not go. I will not subject myself to the rejection of men. To be humiliated in such a way that to have every pond scum come across and spit on me. He didn't say that. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to tightly. But then he says this, in Paul's magnificent understanding of the incarnation, he said, but emptied himself by taking. And there were some that would say that Jesus could not have been God. In fact, he laid aside his deity. He set it aside during the incarnation. And that's not what, the, what this says. It said he emptied himself by the process of taking. He became something he wasn't. He became man. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a man. And you have the illustration, of course, of Jesus in John 13, washing the disciples' feet, where he lays aside his robes and very figuratively washes the disciples' feet is an illustration of God taking on flesh, taking on the limits of manhood to become man. Emptied himself by taking. And then, of course, being born, and as I've already said, living with the constraints of humanity. I have to stop and ask a question. Is this theology... This doctrine, too high for you? Is it too low for you? Is it insignificant? I would argue that this information is Christianity. This is Christianity. This is why we're here worshiping and singing praise songs. Because this Christ... This Jesus is worth it. He's worth it all. God made in the flesh. And I will tell you a little story. In 1978, I got a phone call, or perhaps I called him, from a friend. His name was Charlie Barnhart. Some of you may have heard of him. Most of you never have because he was a he was a preacher. Sandy Collier knows who he was. And Charlie had a daughter whose name was Vicky. And Vicky was 15 when she died. And when I talked to Charlie that day, and I remember the phone conversation like it was yesterday. It was 1978, before a lot of you were even born. And he said, now is the time where I'm going to see if I believe what I've been preaching all these years about the sovereignty of God. Because God took his 15-year-old daughter to be home with himself. 
And right now, if you read Tony's post from yesterday, he said a very similar thing, didn't he? He and Lois's heart are broken, smashed, and yet joyful that her battle, her difficulty is over. Praise the Lord. Now is the time where we see whether or not we believe and what we say we believe. In 1 John chapter 3, one of the things that we'll get to is that John says, and you can trust him because he's an old guy, that when we awake, two things will happen. We will see him as he is. That's great. Not by faith, but by sight. What's the second great thing that he tells us? We will be like him. (laughs) Whoa, wait a minute. Is that great or what? So Ray Ferguson... Rosie Riesinger and Gianna Bartolucci. See him as he is. They're no longer living in the constraints of time. There is no time in heaven. Eternity is eternity. They don't have day-by-day existence like we do, where we live by faith day by day. They have eternity to look forward to, to seeing Christ as he is, high and lifted up. And to be like him. Their characters are no longer stained by the weaknesses of sin. And they can worship. Just take your your highest moment of worship in your entire experience as a Christian. The best time you've ever had with the Lord. And that's the way it is from now until eternity in glory. And that's what the apostle is telling these people. Well, I have a couple of other pages of notes, but it just seems irrelevant. The, the thing that the apostle does, and I'll just want to read, go back to First John. I'm going to just read verses 2 and 3. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifested to us. The idea of this made manifest is to shine forth. It was shown forth to us. He said, I was one of the few that had the opportunity to see Jesus before the ascension where the Shekinah glory was emitting from him at the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he got to see the risen Lord Jesus with some 500 other people. He said that that life was was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. You see, the apostle's not just suggesting that this is his idea, but you can share your ideas. We all like to share our experiences. We like to share our views. And you tell me who you think God is, and then I'll tell you who I think God is. And we'll have just a sharing time. That's not what the apostle's doing here. He's proclaiming. The idea is, again, he's speaking in square waves. He's saying, this is the way it is. There's no debate. We were witnesses. Take our words for it. We were witnesses. That's what the apostles are. And as believers, we live by the words of the apostles. Christianity is defined for us by the apostles and by the word. We can talk about experiences all day long. We can say the Lord spoke to me and told me to... I had a conversation just this week with a guy that told me that the Lord told him to buy this building. And if he didn't buy this building, he'd be sinning. And I said, frankly, I've never had that kind of an experience. Yes, God directs my steps and he, he leads me, but I've never had this God telling me to go buy a building and if I don't buy it, I'm sinning. 
Experiences are great. And they're helpful as they support the facts that been recorded by the apostles in the scriptures. But do not base your life on experiences. Do not base your life on experiences. Base your life and your hopes on the word as it was recorded by the apostles. And John just drives this home. And again, as you'll see as you study this epistle, he just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating and hammering and hammering and hammering and hammering. And if you didn't get it once, he hammers it again because he's an old guy and he can do that. The Christian life is, in a great sense, a mysterious experience. But many have crept into the church that will try to make this mystical experience even more mystical so that they can throw extra biblical commands on top of the imperatives that we find in the scriptures. And then you get this notion that if you don't obey, you're sinning. And it's hoo-ha. As Reed says, that's a Greek term. Hoo-ha. It's hoo-ha. So verse 3. The objective of this letter. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, and when you see a so that, that's a purpose clause that tells you what the objective is, so that you too, you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's all about fellowship. Jesus Christ lowered the wall that separated us from a holy God. And if you had the opportunity to sit through Doc Smith's Sunday school class, one of the best prayers in Scripture is John 17. John 17 is cover that? Yeah. Okay. Days flow into one another and there's a little lack of sleep. Um, It's called the priestly prayer, John 17. And in John 17, verse 23, uh, Jesus prays uh, the following way. I'll start with verse 22. The glory that you have given me that I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be may be with me where I am going, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the objective of John's epistle that we'll be getting into over the next several months is that we might have fellowship with Christ and fellowship with the apostles who are representing Christ and have written down these things for our good. And the great prayer of the high priest, and I wish we had time, but we do not have time to go into the depth of this intercession for us that we might enjoy the same kind of fellowship that Jesus had with the Father. This, you know, if this doesn't, I know you're tired. I'm tired. But if this doesn't affect you, that you are being introduced to the Same kind of fellowship that God the Son had with God the Father for all all eternity. What a privilege. That's the objective of this epistle, is for us to take away any doubts. If we lack assurance as to whether or not we're God's children, read this epistle. Apply these tests to yourself. And the beauty of this kind of teaching The magnificence of this kind of teaching, the compassion of this kind of teaching is that if you find 
upon objective measurement of these three tests that you're not right with God, guess what? You have the opportunity to be right with God because you're still breathing. The heart in your chest is still pounding by the grace of God. And so I urge you, I admonish you to take this test. I hope you have the courage to do so. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, gather our fragmented hearts together. Uh, Lord, uh, there are times in our Christian walk where things just seem too much. And I pray that as we are distracted over the myriads of troubles in the hearts of whether it be the Bartolucci's or the Rhodes family or the Riesinger family or the Ferguson family, I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and replace fear with great love that we might enjoy the fellowship that is similar in nature to the fellowship between the Father and the Son. Lord, we pray for all of your people today that are suffering. And we pray for those that are called aside to help those that are suffering. And just ask for supernatural strength and peace at a time like this. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.